Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and we are going to talk about big tech. And there is none other than the great Robbie Suave, who has written a book about big tech and whether or not we should fear Facebook and social media and all things technology in the future. Robbie, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I have to start off this by asking you, aren't you glad that you and I have fumbled through our teens and early 20s without social media? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. I feel so bad for kids these days that have their every thought basically transcribed and the permanent record mm. of it exists, you know, vis-a-vis texts or DMs or stories on Instagram or what they do on Snapchat, what they do on TikTok, etc. There's a record of so many things that, that ought to stay private or ought to have stayed forgotten because young people are flawed. And, uh, you know, part of the process of growing up is learning proper social behavior is making mistakes, saying things that are wrong, doing things that are wrong, learning from it, growing, and then mm-hmm. having that kind of be forgotten and, you know, having a sort of blank slate once you reach actual adulthood. That process is being a little bit short-circuited just given the technology that now so much of yeah. what you do and say exists forever. And it is actually a real problem. Yeah, I mean, I know people like, you know, my age and above have joked about this. They're like, oh yeah, we did our stuff before the internet was even... Like, there's nothing even bad on the internet that they could have sort of gotten themselves into. And I'm like, man, this is pretty terrible. And I wonder though, if it's like, if the, I don't know how to put it, the ethos of the mid or I guess early adults, like doing hiring and doing the things that like allow them to look into the youth of people and see their mistakes. It's like, man, if they didn't care about this, it might not even matter. But apparently people care about things like what Brett Kavanaugh did 30 years ago or things that kids did at the age of 15. And they said things that, you know, were pro-Nazi or this or that. And, you know, 10 years later, they're trying to get a job. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wait, that's not even me really at the same time. So the culture on both ends is shift. Like the tech has shifted, but the culture is like people care about what you said 10 years ago as a kid. They do. The tech makes it possible to know what you said 10 years ago, yeah. which I think is, I'm not sure it's been a change in human behavior as much as now this is possible to do. And maybe the human behavior mm-hmm. always would have been like that. But what we do need to change because we can't really, in fact, change the technology. It's sort of like a, you know, Pandora's box is open a little bit. And, and mm-hmm. I sort mm-hmm. of my... The theme of my book is, you know, we're not going back to some era before social media. So it does actually mean we have to have social norms change. And I, I do think there should be broad practicing of forgiveness in terms of hiring, college admissions, that sort of thing. You know, the kinds of people who, who want to, you know, run you out of polite society because you said something offensive, you know, when you were 15, I always think, are they naive? Do they think they didn't say anything wrong when they were 15? Because I guarantee mm. you they did. No one is, you know, very, very few, uh, the literal saints, no one else is a saint, right? People make mistakes. And it's just, I think, rose, you know, tinged glasses to think that, well, I never did anything wrong. So I, I wouldn't have been caught like that. You have no idea, even the, like the way language <laughs> changes, the casual kind of 
things that would have been considered racist today that weren't racist then or homophobic or sexist or whatever, yeah. which is not to say you had any malice or you should be punished for. I don't think you, you should. I think there's a lot of you know, grade school behavior that people should absolutely just be allowed to grow out of that shouldn't haunt them for the rest of their lives. But that was just, that was always the case. The only new thing is now we have a record of it. I wonder if kids these days don't realize that in a sense, or maybe we can just even acknowledge that in a sense, a lot of this is kids thinking out loud and, you know, the person who's like morally superior in their own minds, judging, you know, people who say, you know, would you say grade school level stuff? It's like, yeah, everybody's thought it. And yet the tech has helped us think things out loud in some ways that it's like, crap, oh, that's out. You know, people are saying the silent parts out loud in how they're expressing themselves on social media. Yeah, I always say to people, look, if a camera had followed you around your entire life and captured you at your worst or most embarrassing moment, you would not like that. <laughs> it would hurt your employment prospects. Mm. And it's, just, it's not fair. It shouldn't be like that. It really shouldn't. So your book, which is called Tech Panic, Why We Shouldn't Fear Facebook and the Future. Tell us a little bit about like, what was the reason you wrote the book? I mean, you kind of hinted at that a little bit ago here. And what is the sort of, you know, I'm going to ask you the standard question. What's the elevator pitch of the book? What's it about? Sure. It's about attempts to regulate social media, which I am against for the most part on libertarian grounds. I'm, you know, used to kind of, I guess, Democrats or the progressive left or whatever you want to call them, you know, wanting to use regulation to change corporate behavior, or change policies of companies that they don't like. But what has been very interesting over the last however many years is that the Republican Party has gotten a lot more willing to use government power, government regulation to also address corporate behavior they don't like. And there's been this tremendous kind of bipartisan consensus that something has to be done about big tech, about the social media platforms, Facebook, Google, Twitter, YouTube, which is owned by Google, Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, and TikTok and Snapchat and so on. So I tried to survey the, you know, the arguments for what are the problems with these platforms and what are the solutions on the table. And you know I operate off of libertarian premises, so you can take that with a grain of salt, that I'm ideologically kind of disinclined to use government power in general. Those are my principles, and they're important to me. But I found the cases, even if we're you know, setting aside principles, the practical case for doing these government solutions to either break up these companies or increase their liability, which are the main two proposals on the table, and there's some other things we can get into, are just really bad ideas that would not address some of the problems, which I think are real. Others, I think, are exaggerated. And Missing from the conversation is actually the tremendous benefit of social media, which is really being missed by kind of a lot of the regulators, a lot of policymakers. I'm not sure it's being missed by the people because I think most people actually basically enjoy these platforms or, or use them in healthy ways. And some people who are too online use them in destructive ways, just like mm. some people drink too much. Some people you know, will bet away their life savings at a casino, whereas most people are not addicts. But anyway, we don't you know, really make government policy to prevent everyone from doing it. So that's kind of where I come from. And I'm happy to get into any, you know, more individual issue areas sure. that you yeah. want. Yeah, well, I think we'll jump into some of them. Of course, we want people to, you know, check out your book and get the full scoop, as it were. Since you're a journalist, I guess that's what you provide us scoops of things, right? Indeed. Is there something unique about social media at this time? Because, you know, in the 90s, there was the threat of Microsoft being too big that turned out to be not really an issue. 
people are worried about Amazon becoming too big as a retailer and having too much power. But there are other people who think... And I think the film or documentary or whatever you want to call it, The Social Dilemma, sort of speaks to there's something unique about social media that is something a little bit more worth fearing. And the reason I think that this is a legit question is because I think it seems like the people on the right who want to regulate big tech are doing so for cultural slash moral reasons. You know, they're concerned about the, at least allegedly concerned, I guess we can say they're sincere about this, but they're concerned about the cultural breakdown of something rather than just the sheer size of a company. So is there something unique about social media? Let me say that I don't think the case has necessarily been made. And we, we ought to be very clear-eyed. We ought, we ought to actually be backward-looking and think, you know, because people who are making the case that social media is unique, you know, they gloss over or they miss or they ignore the fact that this is what has been said every time. That there was something mm-hmm. unique about TV or radio or, you know, whatever you want to... And you can find moral panic the about bicycle. all the... <laughs> the bicycle, right? Which is, uh, which you know, people don't know was actually referenced in this film. You said this documentary, "The Social Dilemma," which I thought was one of the most manipulative films I've ever seen in my life. Actually, guilty of the exact same manipulation it was accusing big tech of doing. But you know, one of their central witnesses for this film, which argues that you know Google and all the rest of the companies are very nefarious on many fronts. But the, uh, Tristan, uh, I can't think of his last name. His first name is Tristan, not Tristan. Tristan. He, you have to say it that way, he gets very upset. He mm-hmm. is a former executive of one of these companies. And he, yeah, he argues that we know big tech is nefarious because we're all talking about how it's nefarious. It's not like some other invention, like the bicycle, for instance. When the bicycle appears on the scene, no one's like, oh no, the bicycle's ruined society. And that shows you the limits of this thinking because actually, if you go back in time, the bicycle was absolutely greeted with moral panic with people writing articles about how it was going to make women ugly. There was such a thing called bicycle face. They were always interviewing experts in the New York Times talking about how your wife was going to get bicycle face if you let her, if you let her <laughs> get a bicycle. It was just this made up, it was just made up nonsense. Actually, the New York Times, which I consider the true villain of my book, such a long history of moral panic about every new innovation in the communication space because so many of these innovations competed with newspapers. The things they said about radio, like they're funny now. Radio did, did yeah. radio wreck society? I don't think so. They said the phonograph would wreck society. The traditional means of communications always fear the new thing. And I think we have to keep that in mind as we look at social media, which has broken up the traditional media's power to do gatekeeping about what you're allowed to discuss. So of course there's going to be a lot of negative reporting about how you know Instagram makes people too depressed, or everyone's too addicted to Facebook's auto scroll, or you know what about how Amazon's affecting local stores? Like that is all coming from entities that have something to lose because of social media. Hmm. So I would suspect that there might be some parents listening and thinking, "But wait, my kids are really, really affected by social media, and I didn't go through this, and I didn't have the tech of social media." I mean, similar to how we started our conversation, right? About what we didn't have, we could say, "Oh, great, we were protected from the harms that you know people knowing my past, you know, we were saved from that." But I'm looking at my kids, and they're being bullied, or they're being, you know, teased, even, you know all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. They're being left out of text threads, you know, this passive aggressive stuff. They're being told certain things. They get images that tell them that they look unbeautiful. 
and maybe that's just confirmation bias. Maybe it's just like we're only focused on what our kids are doing. But like, imagine if you're a parent, like, what do we do with all that experience? Even if we can say, hey, here's the data that shows that this is just the next iteration in tech that we need to adapt to. We still have to adapt in some way. Absolutely. And I would never make the claim that social media has no downsides or that there are no harms or that there's no one being harmed by it. Sure. Absolutely. For teenagers, they can use social media too much. There can be too much negativity and too much bullying. There can be too much sort of negative body image kind of awareness going on. It's been a particular problem with Instagram. You can find some survey results showing that. I mean, this was actually what the big whistleblower kind of episode was where this employee of Facebook, well, of Meta, now what we're calling it, yeah, sure. came forward, said that there's this internal research showing, I mean, it's a subset of a subset of users. It's a subset of teenage girl users who were responding to a survey saying that Instagram was you know, negatively impacting essentially mm-hmm. their perception of themselves, which sure, I, I find plausible. It's, that's nothing different at all than like what glossy magazines, the kind of effect that that's been shown to have. But even if we're looking at these survey results, right, we're talking about a minority of a subset of users that are negatively impacted by it. And I, if you're being negatively impacted by it, sure, don't use it. <laughs> Should parents feel more empowered to limit their kids' social media use? Absolutely. Should the age at which parents are willing to give their kids smartphones be later? Perhaps. Now, maybe you might have a very emotionally intelligent you know, kid mm-hmm. who, who would do fine with one earlier. That's fine, too. I leave that flexibility to individual parents. Should they limit, you know, how long the kids are on them at night? I think one of the probably most harmful effects, honestly, is sleep patterns being interrupted. But I, that's something I've seen in my own life. I'm sure that's something teens are experiencing. Sure. Yeah. You know, keep the phones out of the bedrooms at night, you know. But again, is this new, like, I was born in 1988. I, you know, I grew up on Super Nintendo and then Nintendo 64 and PlayStation and Dreamcast and et cetera. And you know what, I would have played video games all night and all day and everything if I'd been allowed to, but I was only allowed to play an hour a day. And that was like a rule that my parents had and that was healthy and fine. Is it so fundamentally different from that? We can't do anything about it. I have a hard time believing that. And then we're missing, you know, even we're looking at some kids having a hard time on these platforms. Now, of course, bullying though is nothing new. Like the in-person experience in school can be horrifically bullying. Frankly, being a teenager is very difficult for a lot of Mm. teenagers. If you surveyed those same girls who said Instagram was making them feel unwell, ask them how school makes them feel. I bet a larger percentage would say school gives them a negative, you know, kind of experience because being a teen is hard. Like even kids who have a kind of normal or benign social experience, many of them experience bullying at some times. Many of them are then bullied. This kind of dichotomy between the bullied Mm -hmm. and the bullies is not true at all in school, right? There are days where you're king of the classroom and you can be a bully and then, you know, you're low man on the totem pole next day. Like it's just constantly shifting. Mm. And some of that dynamic is now just taking place online and has replaced maybe what's in the classroom. It would actually surprise me if it's gotten much, much, much worse. I mean, it, it used to actually be physically violent for boys. The amount of violence that young men experience in like the high school is now we like accept we have a lower tolerance for that kind of, you know, actually beating kids up sort of thing, right? So you have to keep all of that in mind. I've looked at the survey results. I've processed the data. You know, reasonable people can make reasonable different conclusions. But it looks to me like most young people are having a fine experience on social media. Some use it too much or having a very harmful experience. 
Some are cut off from social media and have terrible uh, mental health because of that, because a lot of their friends are using it to connect with each other. Well, yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, a lot of you're talking about leaving this up to individual parents. And of course, I mean, I think libertarians, we would all agree with that in particular. The challenge, I think, for a lot of parents is that you have one kid who might be more emotionally intelligent and younger than the other one. And the other one Mm. has friends whose parents are a little bit more, I guess I'll use the word permissive, or they let them have their phones earlier, or they get data plans at a younger age because of, you know, for legit reasons that their family needs it, right? Like it's a single mom and she's got to keep track of her kids and whatever the situation might be. And now it's sort of like being employees, you're not really competing against the employers for wages. You're competing against other people who are willing to do the job for cheaper. It's like, wait, wait, all of our friends are letting their kids get phones earlier. No, stop. We <laughs> we need to like raise the age that you're allowed to have a phone yeah. in our community. And so, you know, the challenge, of course, is simply that you have kids with varying needs. We saw this during the pandemic. Like you even point this out in the book. It's like, does anybody truly think that we would have been better off without Amazon during the pandemic or without you know the ability to, for crying out loud, make and see memes during COVID, right? Like that in and of itself was probably a morale booster. Absolutely. I had actually hoped the pandemic, the reality of the pandemic would kind of put this, what I find is an often frustrating and ridiculous conversation about how bad big tech is, how bad social media is, because you know, thank goodness we had it. And that's true for kids too. We, what we did to young people during the pandemic, I, you know, I think is a moral scandal. I'm very against Mm, the COVID restrictions. I'm extremely against them. And uh, sorry, there's a, there's an ambulance going by. Can you hear that? The government is trying to keep you from saying what you're saying. (laughs) They're trying to silence me. So, you know, what we did to them was so bad. Thank goodness. And I, and I would have never, (laughs) I don't think any of those policies were correct or good, or they went on for far too long. But thank goodness young people had some means of keeping Mm. in contact, of of doing interaction with their friends. Is it preferable to actual physical interaction? Certainly not. Would I have rather had them in school or doing their extracurricular activities? Sure. But thank goodness they had some way to interact and also to express themselves. You know, some of these platforms have a lot of kind of creative characters about them that are, are healthy. There's a lot of you know, in, in school, they're stuck with their class, right? Online, you can meet people, you can meet bad people too. But kids are, tend to actually be pretty savvy about that kind of stuff. They can meet communities of interesting, like-minded people. Video games online can actually be a great connector, a healthy, honestly, really healthy literary mm-hmm. kind of activity for young men in particular. There's a lot of upside to all this in terms of interaction. Yeah. It's made Social media has made communication and interaction across long distance dramatically easier than ever before. I think about all the positive things, you know, it's done for me. I'm in, I'm, I'm kind of an avid game player, fantasy game player. I, I'm in forums for different games that I like. I've met people all across the world. I've had people who I've met in, who live in Europe through playing games online with them that, you know, they've visited me or I've seen them when I'm in town. It's pretty mm. cool. There's a lot of upside to it that just kind of gets thrown away very easily in, in this conversation about what the harms are, which is not to minimize them entirely, but sure, we talk about them a lot. Yeah. And you know, the one thing that a lot of people sort of forget is, and games can be this, online video gaming can be this, is that kids are a lot of times, they're not just consumers of what's out there. They're actually creators. Mm-hmm. And they're actually, you know, they're trying their hand at YouTube channels or streaming channels, or they're 
I mean, I guess with Minecraft, it's a little bit more creative than like Fortnite, where like you're literally building things to protect yourself while you kill other people in an arena. But you're still you're connecting with people, and you know, one of my kids has really taken to learning how to build a YouTube channel so much so that despite his hatred of reading, he bought a book on how to build a YouTube brand. And yes. he's actually reading it. Absolutely. And I'm like, man, this is, this is crazy. And it's so tough because, you know, you want to set proper limits. You do know that, you know, late night, you know, gaming is not a good idea. And so, you know, we're going through all of that. He's a young teen. But it's pretty amazing how when people are given, and kids especially, are given the opportunity to create something and even potentially make money with it. And even if he never does, I mean, he's already built enough graphic design skills that he could probably get an entry-level job. Yeah, and, I've seen that among. I, I don't have kids, but I have. Uh, so take you know, take my parenting advice with a grain of salt. But I have like thirteen nieces and nephews, actually quite young nieces and nephews, and what they're able to do creatively with yes, with Minecraft. One of them's interested in at least one's interested in YouTube. It's really cool and exciting, and you know, is something to not be looked on with disdain or automatic suspicion. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about censorship and the parameters under which these companies can actually do what they do and what makes this possible. And of course, we'd have to go to an origin story, as it were, and that would basically be Section 230. And so I think, you know, and you point this out in the book, and I think a lot of people think they know what it means or think they know what it says, and then they sort of assume they know what it means. What is Section 230? It's actually pretty short, but it's actually a section in a particular bill or legislation, I believe, from the 90s, correct? That's correct. And uh, a lot yeah. of the surrounding law that was part of got struck down, but Section 230 was allowed to continue to exist. And you're right that people do get it wrong, and I think beat up on it unfairly. What it does, what Section 230 does, is say that an internet platform, the platform itself is not considered the speaker of whatever the content is, even if it does make editorial decisions, even if it does engage in content moderation, because they were trying to solve a very interesting problem, which was in the early days of the internet, you had one forum that took down, you know, vile comments or pornography or some, you know, really obscene things. And then you had one, another forum that wasn't doing any moderation whatsoever. And they both got, you know, sued because there was, somebody said there was libel on this one and libel on that one. And the court's were confused, there were conflicting court decisions where they actually treated the forum that had done some moderation, taking on vital stuff, stuff that everyone thinks makes a better yeah. internet experience if we take that down. Well, they got held liable for what they had left up. Whereas the forum that did no kind of moderation and you know what could have become a, <laughs> in the modern iteration would become like a Nazi hangout or something. Well, they were let off the hook. Section 230 was supposed to fix that, which is that mm. a site can do some moderation without taking on liability. And this is not actually just for the tech platforms, for Facebook and Google, et cetera. It's actually for anyone who has an online part component of their speech. So I write for Reason Magazine. If I say something that is libelous in an article I write, you can sue me and Reason. But in the comment section, there you couldn't sue Reason for that. You'd have to sue the actual person who said it. And this ends what up... What about if your response... Sorry to just get specific sure. here real too soon, but like let's say somebody responds to you in a comment and you decide, hey, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this guy down in his arguments and you say something libelous. You can come for me. Well, if I'm speaking on behalf of the I'm an employee of the company, 
in that case, okay. yes, you okay. could. Yes. Because you're an employee. That, that's, yes. Okay, got it. So got if, it. if okay. Facebook puts out a press release, a statement from a Facebook comms person, and it's libelous, yeah, you could, then you could sue Facebook. But in general, speech that occurs on Facebook, you know, under, where you post a, a comment, you can be sued. Facebook cannot. And to be fair, that is different than how you know libel generally works for traditional publishers. And you know, in, in my book, even though it's me talking, and I don't, yeah, I don't work for whoever the Macmillan or the Simon and Schuster, right? You can sue them if there's libel in my book. It works differently online, but it's a good thing because it's what makes the internet possible at all. Can you imagine? what it would be like. And I really want conservatives to think about this because they're the ones often really want to change Section 230. If Facebook, Twitter, it's YouTube, etc., could be sued for any speech that was libelous or wrong on the platform, what do you think they would do? <laughs> do you think they would well, allow Facebook more? Facebook probably couldn't have even existed. They wouldn't exist in the first place. They certainly would not allow more conservative or provocative or right-wing or Republican or contrarian speech. At best, you'd be looking at a model where only verified or checkmark people can talk. At best. Mm. You're probably looking at a model where everything has to be approved before it goes up on the site. You're not looking, and this is my major point, you're not looking at a speech regime that is more friendly to free speech. So I share you know, many of the criticisms of individual moderation decisions that have been made on this platform. I have criticized the Hunter Biden laptop decision. I've criticized keeping Trump off Twitter for a long period of time, et cetera. Mm. But you cannot tell me that we would improve these platforms or make them more friendly to our ideas or more friendly to provocative thinkers by tinkering with their liability threshold. All we could do was destroy them entirely or make them much less friendly to non-liberal speech, in my view. So some of the pushback on Section 230 is that it sounds libertarian-ish if you try to make it in a certain way is that the government is basically giving a perk to one industry over another in the same way that it's like, oh, well, the government's favoring fossil fuels, you know, industry, and that's why we can't, mm -hmm. you know, have fairness there. So is that true of Section 30 or is that partially true? Like what level of analysis do you find there? You know, I have heard this argument and I thought about it for a long time because inconsistencies do bother me. And I've honestly think I've land where I've landed on this, and you might wildly disagree, your viewers might wildly disagree. I think I would solve this problem if we think the inconsistency is a problem by just granting the same liability protection to all publishers and basically everyone. I'm not a big fan of libel law if we're getting down to it, the more I think about this. And mm -hmm. this has been a kind of evolution in my thinking. You know, being able to sue people for being wrong about you, it's not really a free speech kind of thing. You know, these are holdovers from when, you know, people dueled each other. If you accuse someone else of having syphilis and your reputation <laughs> mattered a lot in the business place, like that kind of stuff, that's not yeah. really the environment we live in now. It doesn't really matter. And I think I would just kind of, if we have to square this circle, I would say this same protection should exist everywhere because I'm not sure, mm. you know, what you can sue people over is very, you can be very wrong and very malicious to someone without it raise, you know, rising the level of libel. It's a, I would probably just revise this entire legal regime. This protection is unfair. Just give it to traditional publishers as well. You know, if you think somebody's wrong, they're libeling you, they're defaming you, then you make your speech saying that they're wrong, just like we would on any kind of public policy topic. Yeah. Okay. Is, uh, if, if we're going to go down that route is what I've decided. 
Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a more free speech absolutist or free speech priority in your approach. I mean, I don't... I think I, in some sense, I'd be like, yeah, I would acknowledge that that's probably a better direction to go than anything. So it does seem in some ways that like it's a slight perk enjoyed, but like it's almost like a factoid of history that it's like, well, we were trying to solve a problem. It wasn't like we were trying to threaten traditional media, even though that is what's happening to that. Like, that's how it feels to them. It's like, well, this is a threat. I mean, one thing that you point out is that like, there's a little bit of projection going on. Like journalists think that Twitter is a public square because that's where they all hang out. Right, 100%. And it's not, it's a private company. It's a company that's trying to maximize its revenue by creating a curated user experience that is attractive to advertisers. That's what Twitter's doing and that's what Facebook's doing. So there's a lot of issues where people go, well, why is this their policy? Well, they clearly think that policy maximizes their revenue. They are trying to sell ads and creating a user interface that is designed to be attractive to whatever, 18 to 49-year-olds, and like that's their policy. Now, they purport to be platforms for free speech, and I think they should live up to their stated commitments. But the reality is you don't pay for these services, and that gets into the whole you know, monopoly thing. I'm like, what is the power they wield over you as users? It's not a power. At best, you can argue they're monopolies in kind of the way they treat upstart competitors or treat each other, but they're not, like Facebook's monopoly over what, it's a repository of your pictures. This gives it no power. You don't pay for this service. You don't need it. It's not at all the same as like Standard Oil having all the oil rigs or something. Like it's just not, monopoly is the wrong way to explain it because that's not the power they have. And then you look at companies like Amazon, which also comes in for a lot of abuse. <laughs> like Amazon has mastered the art of efficiently meeting human need. Things that I can afford that I want show up at my doorstep the day after I order them. In what maniac could find a way in which this is viewed as like really bad? And in fact, it's not the way people think about it. Most people think Amazon is like the greatest company that's ever existed. They have a lot of good reasons to think that. (laughs) It delivers a lot of goods, a lot of quality stuff to be, especially during the pandemic. You weren't supposed to go outside. We were warned early on to wash our groceries, all that nonsense. It just does so much good for people. And in survey results, people love it. And then you have like, you know, a bunch of kind of Bernie Sanders Democrats and then even some kind of trust-busting Republicans who are like, no, we got to, there's something nefarious about this. We can't allow this to go yeah. on. We have to fix it. Well, nobody else thinks this is a problem. Everybody likes this. Yeah, if like the government had created Amazon somehow, like, you know, in some sort of offshoot of the US Postal Service and created Amazon as wildly successful as it is, you'd have only libertarians saying we need to break it up and right. privatize it. And everybody else would be like, but no, it's a government service. And it's like, hold on here. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's just like you. It's like really, really bizarre to me. You know, mid-2020, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what would we do without Amazon? I live in a rural area, so like it wasn't quite as dramatic for me to stay in my house. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's one of those like head scratchers to some extent. I do want to go back to something you said about them bringing private company in it. And I realize that this is sort of like a libertarian infight about the nature of these companies, specifically because there's been at least what appears to be censorship. And I realize that that word is not necessarily the correct Mm -hmm. word, but it's the nomenclature that we're using about it. So you could clarify that here in a sec. But the idea that it's a private company seems to me only legitimate insofar as it is operating as a private company and not with sort of undue government interference. In the same way that like technically the Federal Reserve is a private company, but really isn't. I think that's where a lot of libertarians 
and even just mostly people who are in favor of free speech are going to say, but hold on, these companies really aren't acting like private companies, especially during the pandemic. Well, they're acting, they're certainly acting under considerable government interference and government pressure. I would not dispute that whatsoever. Unfortunately, because of how big and powerful and evil our government is, that's true of a lot of companies and a lot of industries. But that, that almost gets into like victim blaming. Like you, you've been bullied by the government, so we're supposed to say you're no longer a private company because you're being bullied by the government. You know, the fact is a lot of these companies are making decisions that I don't agree with because hostile politicians are threatening them. That's certainly been true during the pandemic. The prevention of being able to discuss COVID topics that I think are absolutely within the realm of legitimate discussion, you know, the efficacy of masks, I mean, the efficacy of vaccines to some degree, frankly, yeah. on, on transmission, at least. The lab leak theory, which I think is a perfectly Videos plausible... Videos of January 6th involvement? Yeah, yeah, all that kind of stuff. And, well, the January 6th, let's put that aside for one sec. Sure. I'll address that in a minute. But all the COVID stuff, and these platforms are getting direction, they're getting requests, carefully phrased requests, you know, requests in quotes, from the Biden administration to get rid of this content. And we're in a moment where they're facing some kind of regulation where Congress, everybody in Congress wants to regulate them. So yes, they're certainly going along. And do I wish they would make bold, you know, take bold stands against this sort of pressure? I do. But really, conservatives haven't had their back. Frankly, Republicans have not had their back. Maybe probably some, you know, extremely libertarian libertarians are probably the only people who have. So they're caving. And I think that's bad, but I'm not ang- I'm angry. I'm directing my fury at the political figures who are telling them to do these bad things. And if we're going to try to change behavior, it's very murky to like what we can do about the company doing things we don't like. At some level, I think the, if these were court questions, the Supreme Court, which is a, like a very First Amendment and e- even for corporate speech kind of court, is going to say, well, you can't make them do anything. We can elect different people or we can punish our elected leaders for bullying social media. It it seems we should channel, instead of being mad at big tech, be mad at big government. Like channel more of your rage there. And that is Mm. something that, you know, right libertarians, I think, should do. The January 6th stuff is slightly different, I would say, because, look, I think the government, unless you're like a total anarchist, which I would absolutely respect, and a lot of my friends are anarchists, and I dabble in anarchy, but I, I think preventing violence is a legitimate goal of the government. And, you know, to the extent like actual crime is being organized on social media. If you read my book, you know, I'm against like all the regulations for a lot of the speech related stuff. I think the area where it is not just straight up wrong for the government to be more involved or do something about social media is to prevent violence, crime, terrorism, you know, organized violence, that kind of stuff. So to the extent, you know, some of the January 6th stuff was just like literally organizing a kind of riot. Not, I mean, well, even there, like 98% of it probably isn't, right? It was it's First Amendment protected right. protest. I mean, I, I was there on January 6th. I covered the protests. Most of the people there were not doing anything illegal. And I disagree with the reason they were protesting, but they were absolutely had the right to do it. And then a small number of people, small relative to the size of the crowds, not small in absolute terms. It was like hundreds of people, you know, committed property destruction. And to the extent they're discussing that on social media, there is a role for government, at least in theory, in my view. Yeah. Well, what I was referring to is that like there are people wanting to cover the January 6th stuff and they have their like take on it. And that take is more documentary than anything. And it's more like, oh, they're oh, not even able to... Certainly. 
I also, in addition to writing for Reason, I host a YouTube show for The Hill, the publication of The Hill. It's called Rising. Mm-hmm. And we were suspended for a week because all we did was say that we quoted Trump. We're a news show. We played a segment of Trump saying the election had been stolen. And according to YouTube's policies, which I think are completely insane, even igno- just acknowledging that Trump had said it without us correcting it, even though we, like, I don't share Trump's views that the election was stolen. I think the election was not stolen. <laughs> I think he's the legitimate loser. Their policy was that we had violated their election misinformation policy. Mm. But again, they're being, you know, they're being screwed. And all you're at. doing is reporting it. It was truly crazy. But in the research I did for this book, when I talked to people who work for these companies, they are telling me that they take their cues oftentimes from mainstream media. And look, they're being screamed at by the Biden White House, by Cong- members of Congress of both parties by the New York Times, by the Washington Post, these sites are being accused of like breaking the foundations of our society and our democracy. And they are increasingly saying, you know what? Stop yelling at us, no more news. And they're deprioritizing news. Actually, this is a more recent development than my book, but all the major platforms are pivoting away from covering the news at all. Facebook is going to deprioritize its news algorithm. Twitter is punishing off-site links. YouTube is nuking news channels. They're all reacting, in my view, to pressure from the mainstream media and the government. Look, there's basically a very real chance that the anti-social media forces win this fight to, to prevent social media from having liberated you from their kind of narratives because of the mm. pressure so extreme. How do you think social media will evolve if that seems to be the direction it goes, if they seem to win? So right now, TikTok is the big social media winner. TikTok is a more visited website than Google. So what social media wants to give you right now, the other companies, the competitors, they want to give you more of what TikTok gives you, which is these kinds of videos from kind of content creators, not organizations, but content creators. And you know, what your friends think is popular is what it's going to show you. Try to, you know, try to guess, try to use an algorithm to think what you might be interested in seeing, which is like what goes on on Instagram. I think it's actually a little bit more healthy on TikTok in that narrow sense. It's less healthy overall because TikTok is a company that is, you know, Chinese run. I don't really think the issue is necessarily China having access to the data, mm-hmm. but there are like legitimate censorship concerns here in that China can have this company like nuke certain topics or like they could make they could make young people more favorable to Russia in the Russia-Ukraine conflict or or more favorable to Ukraine and you know depending on what they thought by nuking certain subjects or not letting you talk about it which we've done with our US government has done with COVID to some degree, ironically, on Facebook and other places. But this is like that on steroids. And that's legitimately concerning to me. So you also cover in the book that Europe takes a more, I think it's more privacy-centric approach to these issues of like privacy and free speech and you know what can be said in the public square or publicly. And the US is a little bit more on the free speech end of things. Could you describe that a little bit? Because I thought that was a unique, you know, something that Americans probably aren't really alert to. You know, that was something new to me. And then, you know, how does that impact what we're going through now? I mean, it might be pretty clear as you describe it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and there are trade-offs between privacy and free speech. You know, do you get to say, write about, if you find out, you know, embarrassing private information about someone, can you just publish it? Can you publish their pictures without their permission? What if they're inappropriate pictures? You know, these mm-hmm. are conflicts between the ethos of just, no, total free speech. Every, everyone can say whatever they want. Speech is not violence. And then a social desire to allow people to have some privacy now that these platforms 
really expose us to a great degree of non-privacy. So Europe has, so in the US, we really, really do default toward free speech. It's very hard with libel, like it's very hard to meet the threshold that you've defamed someone. In Europe, they are more on the privacy side. They actually have a law, the kind of um, right to be forgotten law. So you, by law, you are allowed to petition Google and say, I want this search result for me deleted from Google. So this is not a policy that Google necessarily willingly said we won't want to have. It was something the European government said we want Google to have. So they have to have mm. it. And actually, Google ends up granting about half of these. They get, I, forget, I have the statistic in my book. I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. And they get a lot of these requests and they end up granting about half of them in Europe. In the US, you can't, uh, I, I mean, you, you could ask Google to see what happens, but it extremely, substantially harder if there's an embarrassing you know, news headline about you or whatever it is to get them to take it out. You don't have the support of the law and the government cannot make Google do that because of the First Amendment. Mm. So it's Got interesting. It. And I, you know, I mostly think the U.S. approach is better. I'm a big free speech First Amendment guy. But, the, you know, there are some areas where we're going to have to consider privacy. Again, I think especially with sharing like people's really personal information or like images and revenge porn is a topic yeah, we don't have right. to get into. But you know, sharing non-consensual sharing of other people's private images, which is something that is really allowed by social media and is actually something that companies have said we're not liable, you can't, well, most companies say we'll take it down if you call us out for it, but we don't have to because of Section 230. And that is a narrow tweak to Section 230 I would probably be okay with. Yeah. So let me ask you, I have two more questions. And one of them is, well, I guess they're both maybe a little in the fun direction. But speaking of tweaking, if you were to go back in time and advise the founding fathers, knowing that there would be this thing called social media in the internet, would you advise them a certain way of <laughs> setting up hmm. the First Amendment? You know, I really wouldn't. Well, you know what? I might make, I guess I would make clear that the First Amendment means what we consider it to mean today. I guess I'd make hmm. that clear in the text because it actually just says, right, Congress shall make no law. This has now been understood to mean, you know, well, I guess part of it is the corporation, right? But it, this means every government entity. And that's a good thing. And today's Supreme Court is like wildly extremely pro-speech, right? You can, the horrible Westboro Baptist Church people screaming the most obscene, yeah. offensive things you can possibly imagine in the most offensive context at like funerals for service people, as long as they're in the public street, they get to do that. The Supreme Court has said that. That is such a high bar for, mm. if that speech is allowed, basically everything is allowed. And I think that's correct. And I'm glad the Supreme Court has arrived at that. It wasn't always the case. I mean, you know, you had world people passing out, you know, leaflets opposing U.S. entry into World War I were put in prison. That's actually where we get this the stupid don't shout fire in a crowded theater metaphor. That was the Supreme Court saying, well, you can't shout just as you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. You can't pass out leaflets saying it's wrong to get involved in World War I which is why mm. this, that metaphor is ridiculous. Like it was being cited in favor of preventing speech that wow. we obviously think is constitutional today, right? Everyone, yeah. like no one thinks that you're not allowed to protest the wars as long as you're not doing so violently. So we arrived at that eventually. I would want to make it clear that that is the case. But, you know, people broadly do accept, unlike the Second Amendment, which is contentious for non-libertarians, not contentious for you and I probably, but uh, it's, you know, people disagree about, well, does that mean just 
the kind of rifles they had access to at the time and that, you know, that only a militia, not just individual people carrying them, you know, what does it exactly mean? I think it means, you know, what the Supreme Court has interpreted it to mean, which it's a really broad defense of your right to own any kind of gun. And we disagree on that for the Second Amendment. I mean, society broadly. We actually don't disagree on that very much for the First Amendment. You know, it's not just like, you're a, like a leaflet in the town square. It also means Facebook. <laughs> it also means, right, it means right. speech. It even means spending money. Speech, we're defining speech very broadly, but that wasn't necessarily so clear at the very beginning, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If I had a time machine, I would tell them, write the Second Amendment like you're talking to a five year old. Yeah, exactly. That might, have, might have helped. Exactly. Okay. Do you think Elon Musk will save Twitter? No, I don't think so. I think he's no? trying to get out of it for sure. And I don't know why. I've heard a lot of different arguments. It's possible this whole thing was a stunt for him to offload some Tesla stock without spooking the markets. That's one theory. I guess another theory is that he's just sincere. He didn't realize that you know, many of the accounts, or he, he took Twitter at their word that the threshold of how many bots there were was lower than mm-hmm. it actually is. Yeah. But it sounds like he is not coming in to save the day. It's kind of funny because so many people at Twitter were horrified at the idea of him acquiring the company. And now Twitter is suing him to force him to acquire, to be their boss, <laughs> which is just hilarious. You imagine suing someone to make them yeah, buy you yeah. when you were complaining about them buying you. But I imagine yeah. what happens eventually. Different actors though. Yeah, it, it's different actors, but... It's still fun yeah, to watch. He's not going to fix it. He's, I imagine there'll be a deal. He has the, to my mind, the weaker legal case from what I can tell. But that doesn't mean he's going to end up buying the company. He's going to end up giving them a, like a billion dollars and he's going to walk away. And probably yeah. that was his plan all along. So while yeah, I would love to have counted on Elon Musk to fix it, such is not the case. If Twitter is not making your life better or healthier or happier, just don't use it as much is what I would say. <laughs> I've been using it less and that's fine. People should feel free to do the same. I don't use Facebook hardly at all anymore, mm. funny enough. Yeah, it's just uh, become less relevant to my life. It's where boomers are. It's you know where your crazy uncle is. Not that I have any crazy uncles, but if I had one, that's where he'd be. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I think we might lose our chance to have at least one person have to testify before Congress and act like Tony Stark and say, "Take a hike." Elon might have been that CEO. Dorsey <laughs> was kind of close at a couple times during those ridiculous hearings. He did one time say. He answered some ridiculous question. I'm like, well, do you think you're obligated to do this, that, and the other thing for children? And he just said no. And it was beautiful. <laughs> but, oh, uh, that's yeah. good. Well, Robbie, what is next for you? Is there another book in the works? Is there going to be a book that comes out based on a series of articles, which is, I think, what your boss's preference is for books, as I recently heard her say? Where can people find you online? What are you doing next? We'll wrap it up with that. Sure, I hope to eventually have a third entry in my Panic trilogy. The first book was about panic on college campuses. This one was about panic with social media. Please call it Don't Panic. Don't Panic. That would be a good idea. That's the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy motto, right? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. So, uh, no, I'm not sure what that will be. Yeah, I'm just writing for Reason, uh, Reason Magazine, Reason.com. You can find my work there. Check out my YouTube show. It's called Rising. It's for the Hill. It's on YouTube. And you can see my thoughts often on Twitter, sometimes still. And I encourage you to follow me there. Cool. Well, thank you, sir, for joining us. And yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk to you about this. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.